This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Morning, Shane. I'm Good. excited for 58 minutes of science. Are you swinging on that chair? Yep. Am I going to have to pull you forward towards the mic? I really enjoy the song. There you go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> pull back to the mic. Got, you're behaving here, you know. Behaving. Yeah, yeah. It's not like your lab where you can just do what you want. Yeah, we can do whatever the hell we yeah. want. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, you're good. sitting still. You've been a good girl. Good morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> you well? I am, though I am a little bit husky this morning. Yes, you are. A bit mm. more than normal. Mm. Uh, well, you know, normal. Not. You're not normally, are you? New hairstyle, too, I noticed. I know. Check it out. Well, I can't because you've got the headphones on. Uh, Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm admiring your hairstyle. Jeez, that, that's below the belt. Yeah. <laughs> I got a haircut, too. Just the one? <laughs> yeah. oh. I bet there's... people are wishing they could see us right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're just imagining Homer Simpson. Uh, we're going to start... <laughs> no, 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 I was thinking, I really like the rainbow color dye job. That's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw something on Facebook the other day. I thought of getting a few friends of mine called Beard Glitter. Oh, I saw that. You saw that? It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, We're going to give you some news, first of all, folks, and then we're going to jump into a couple of very good guests uh, we have in the studio today. So, Dr. Laura, we're going to start with you. What's been floating your boat this week in science? Something that's really floating my boat, which I just mentioned a second ago, is their research have developed a new smartphone app where they can look at different types of mosquitoes. Now, the reason why this is important is because we know mosquitoes carry lots of like nasties, they carry malaria, chikungunya, dengue, zika. But say there's three thousand, three and a half thousand types of mosquitoes, but only around forty of them carry diseases, right? Hmm. Okay. So, so, not, so not all mosquitoes. No, just a really small fraction of mosquitoes are actually able to carry these these diseases, right? So, if you have an app on your phone which allows you to identify the species, then you can be like, ah. Uh, Bad guy, good guy. You know, there's the potential to say this is a mosquito that's going to Wait, be carrying a disease is that or not. On your yeah, arm? I'm like, yeah. well, do, do I try to get the picture while it's biting me? This, this is this is the problem. So I was thinking, oh, I would love this app because imagine, imagine ow, if ow. you're in sort of Bali, for example, and you're like, is this a good spot? Is this a bad spot? Are these guys carrying dengue or not? But the thing is, you've got to like, if you see a mosquito, you've actually got to take the time to you know get the app out, and then you've got to be five centimeters away from the mosquito. I mean, to be honest, if I saw a mosquito, I'd be running at that point rather than being like, oh, hold on, let me get out my phone. But mm, okay, silver okay. lining. So, so there's a silver lining. But there are so there are two there are two teams who are doing this independently, and they've got these programs, and they've given them really cool names as they can. So there's a team at Oxford who have the Humbug program, and they've developed the Mosware app. Sounds cool. Mosware app. Yeah, Mosware app. Sounds the, like a virus. <laughs> yeah, it does a bit. And they, there's a group at Stanford who has the Abuzz program, and so the, these apps they've kind of been testing them on lab reared strains, and they you know they've got it to a point where you know they can put the they can put the phone on the app on many different types of phones. All phones work equally, whether it's a good phone or a bit of a you know old fogey phone. The apps work. You, they're able to kind of detect the mosquito, bank it to the database, and then they kind of took the, the mosquitoes back into the labs and said, yep, that's right, that's wrong. And so th- they've got the app working really well. They took mm. it into the field. Um, so then they did sort of, you know, larger studies, and then they showed that this app's working. Um, 
So the, the, the massive implication of this is that anybody can do this if you're not scared of mosquitoes and running away rather than taking the time to sort of get out your phone and, and look at this mosquito because it allow, it's, it's at zero cost for us to start identifying where these deadly mosquitoes are globally. So mm. that's really cool. So we can start to map where these mosquitoes are. Why? And that helps for, you know, control strategies and so forth. Can I ask, why, why are they doing it visually and not with the audio? Oh, so it, so, it, so visually that's how they're kind of identifying back to the lab. But but it's actually a recording that they take on the phone. That's an excellent okay, question, okay. Because, so because that seems to me as like yeah. I don't have to know about it or no, see no, it no. on my arm. I so just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a recording. So you have to be five centimetres away, but it's because every species has a distinct wing beat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, so it's a one-second recording that you need to take. Oh, that's cool. Because that, that, And you could get an alert, you know, den- <laughs> dengue-type carrying mosquito nearby. Run. Run. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think, you know, some apps have, have tried to bridge the fourth wall where you can buy things, attachments mm. that go with the app. You know, Crayola does that for some of their drawing programs. Yeah, yeah. I think this app should come with an option to, like, order mosquito netting. <laughs> you know, the, the, the hat thing and the gloves. As long as it the, arrives yeah. by drone in the next yeah, 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. in a bad spot. Come down. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's fascinating, though, some of these apps watching how they work because one of the ones at the moment that I'm, I'm really interested in have done some work in and, and, and you know, have, have, you know, just so much hope for is the alerts around thunderstorm asthma. But my biggest concern at the moment is the false positives because there have been many, many alerts come out over the last few weeks because, you know, basically we're taking the high-risk strategy at the moment of, well, anything is a problem. And so everyone you get is like, oh, that again, don't worry about it. Now, it may well be that they... And the fact that they're not... Andrew from the bomb and I have discussed this, and, of course, the bomb doesn't put out health alerts. It puts out weather alerts. Although, you know, I think that's a slippery slope when, when we talk about you know, extreme heat and, you know, that is a health alert in a way. You're still, you know, alerted to a potential problem. Thunderstorms like, you know, don't, don't go and play golf. It's still to do with your health. But so many people have the bomb app, you know, so it would be more useful if it came through that because I don't want to be the one. Uh, let me describe it to you this way. It's important for me as someone who doesn't get asthma to get the alert as well. And I get that through the bomb app, but I'm not going to download a pollen app if I don't get asthma because I think I don't care. It's not my, you know, it's not my my game, right? Sure. So the information is not getting to those who aren't affected, and often the people nearby are the ones who have to provide assistance. So it would be better if the information went to everyone. So this app is new, you know, it's happening. Information is being distributed. I'd be really curious to see how it has an effect over the coming years when this stuff happens. Yeah, you know, happens again. And I think the real power is in that data set. I mean, once you start to add to that data set and you mm. add data sharing, you might actually get to a point where you are able to be more predictive and proactive by, you know, not only the app saying you know, mm. you're entering this situation, but through other communications. But I think there'll be more partnerships yeah. in the future um, that will allow that kind of sharing beyond apps. Mm. And, the pol- and the Pollen Count app does do surveys as well. So once you've, if you've downloaded it, it actually every now and then it gets you to do surveys around, you know, on this particular day, did you feel any effect? And so they're trying to build the data to, to give them more predictive capability, which is, yeah, apps. Apps. Got to love apps, yeah. Dr. Crystal, what do you got for us? Well, um, I'm uh, excited this week to read about some new uh, work in the world of viruses. So um, most people are aware of the fact that, you know, in their body they've got kind of good and bad bacteria and that we have this natural population of bacteria that help keep us healthy. What if there's a natural population of viruses that also do the same thing? Mm. And this is something, um, it's, it's not really a new idea because it's based on, um, these viruses that infect bacteria that are called bacteriophages. So they're, they're, they're viruses, but they're viruses 
viruses who normally target bacteria. But it turns out the human body is full of these phages, which are these these bacteria-infecting viruses. But no one really knows how they got there Hmm. because, you know, um, textbook biology teaches that these... um, Phages don't interact with human cells because they target normally target bacteria. So then, how is our body, you know, our 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 our, um, our, our blood and our even our urine and you know our lymph system? How is it full of these um, bacteriophages? Um, well, some research that came out of the University of Melbourne this week may have provided the answer on how these viruses invade the human body, and they. Um, <coughs> They, um, they took some epithelial cells, which are the cells that line the gut and the lungs, and they, and they created this um, layer of them, and they, they could watch how these bacteriophages actually were taken up inside the cells and within 10 minutes um, move through the cells and through the epithelial layer, you know, in a dish, um, you know, going through that cell layer in a way that no one's ever shown before because everyone's yeah. always thought that these viruses just didn't go near human cells. And so they, the fact that it can do that in 10 minutes led them to do some modelling that suggested that it could be possible that um, that the body might be actually able to take up 31 billion of these phages per day and that across the gut that might be where they're kind of going in and out of the body. And it's and it started to um, open up this whole idea that just like you have a microbiome for bacteria that keeps you healthy or potentially you know influences your health status and your immune system that actually these um phages could also be playing mm. an important role you know within the human body and it just kind of in some ways freaks me out quite a lot to think of the microorganism communities that live within us that input that have such big implications on our health that they were really only just finding out about so one of the big questions there immediately would be you know we talk about when we talk about the microbiome and that and we talk about antibiotics we see the effect of that and what it does to our microbiome and why we should avoid them as much as possible. I mean, what's the counterpoint for viruses? I mean, is there something we're doing that does the same thing to our viral load as as what you would see in the microbiome? Is there something we shouldn't do? Well, and, and that, I guess that's the point. And then it also raises a questions around, well, could we then influence our microbiome using these bacteriophages? Mm. And, you know, looking at there's a lot of therapies now that are out there looking at how we influence our microbiome and if we could influence our microbiome through phages um it would be it would open up whole new ways of kind of looking at protective um uh, health um but it was great to see this uh, research coming out of the university of monash yeah complex beasts we are aren't we as it turns out yeah i like to remind people you know that there isn't a single atom in their body that they had when they were born (laughs) left no, I know we, we we completely replace yeah, ourselves. Yeah. So your your mem- your memory or your consciousness is the only thing that's continued. Yeah, I like yeah, that. it's freaky. And I guess we'll get into that more later today when we talk about the um, Human Atlas project. Mm, indeed, Doctor Ray, Doctor Shane, <coughs> I have a story about things getting brighter. Okay, and, and, and literally, this is this is nighttime light. So okay. no, it's, it's not a Christmas it's, story. No, no, it's <laughs> it's more of a nighttime light pollution. So as it turns out. Even measuring that from space is quite a challenge because it wasn't until recently that sensors that actually would point at the Earth to try to measure these things were actually calibrated. And the only first satellite array detector, and it rolls off the tongue, so I wanted to read it, the Visible Infrared Imaging Radiometer Suite Day-Night Band, VERS DNB, uh, came online in 2012. I know, exciting. And this is run out of um, U.S. Defense and NOAA. Uh, They were actually trying to track how bright the world gets each year. And it's interesting, this sensor, which is calibrated so it could track from year to year accurately, came on about the same time LED lighting became popular. And, and, and there was the comment, LED lights, 
much more energy efficient, so you get light without generating as much heat. The cost is less, so, you know, we could be more energy efficient and have the same amount of light, but instead we um, added light because hmm. it was cheaper and so we could just add more. And so what they've actually seen is that over from 2012 to 2016, each year the amount of light that actually has come out on average from the globe has grown by about 2.2%. Which annually is actually a pretty big amount. That's huge. Yeah. And so, and light pollution, why you worry about this is there's studies to show it affects about 30% of vertebrates and about 60% of invertebrates that are nocturnal. And 100% of optical astronomers. Yes. And, and astronomy was, of course, the other one there, but I I wasn't going to lead with the astronomers, but yes, but it's terrible for light microscopes as well. Uh, and, 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 and they're starting to think it's possible it may have health impacts on humans as well. Mm. And so, Light pollution is something that we need to be able to track to understand its impact. Uh, and, and so it was really interesting to see these sensors come into play. Uh, and there were some areas where some of the cities in the U.S. didn't actually get brighter, but around them just got brighter. Hmm. Uh, and most countries went up. Australia, for a very odd reason, did not go up for that whole period, though. We got darker? We got darker, but that was because they had to differentiate between natural light and light from nature and light from okay. from humans because bushfires when you're created a blip because yeah. okay. uh, we only have 20 million people uh, mm. america has way more people than bushfires so uh yeah but uh, but on average it was just i was fascinated to go oh wow it's actually getting brighter and brighter and brighter and at some point we might have to reconcile how much outside lighting we should have and i i was talking about this story yesterday to my eight-year-old who said well, gosh, that could hurt animals. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, baby turtles look for moonlight reflecting on the water to be able to know how to make it to the water, and they're born at night, and wouldn't that affect them? And at first I was like, where were you reading about baby turtles? That's fantastic. But he's right that, you know, <laughs> lit beaches could could affect that. But, yeah. you know, so it, it there is something about, you know, we evolved. Hmm. We're part of, you know, we were used to things being dark for half of the time. Yeah. So yeah. it has some interesting implications, and, and so it's, Neat that there's a satellite now that can actually track that. Yeah, I mean, even the most basic thing of a plant knowing which way to face at what time of day, to me, means the interaction between the light levels and and the genetics actually of flowers and so forth is incredible. So yeah. you you muck with that, you're going to have some problems. So anyway, uh, now you, you guys, have you guys ever been hit by a, a big hailstone? Like you, you've been? I've hit, run from one. You've run from yeah. one. You've um, run from a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but you know these these things. Um, I don't want to use the wrong terminology. They can have quite a significant amount of mass, right? Because basically, it's water, slightly less dense, but it's water and it's heavy. Yeah, I've got a dent in my car. Yeah, I once had my car I, written off by by uh, a very bad oh, uh, storm. I, I set a personal speed record from the entrance to gate to Melbourne Uni and my office when it started hailing with <laughs> yeah. kind of golf ball size hails. Golf ball size. So yeah. you know this, the, you can you can get a feel of just the amount of damage that water, when frozen, can do, and so from that you can also sort of extrapolate. To, okay, if you start freezing rivers and lakes and so forth, the amount of weight you actually get under that, or the amount of mass total, is is ex- extraordinarily large. And then when you go to things like um, places like Iceland, where you have entire, you know, wastelands in a way just frozen over with glaciers and, and the like, all of a sudden you have very very large ice sheets that you know are kilometres thick in some cases, and they just have an extraordinary amount of mass. Now one of the things that that can do is place downward pressure on on the the crust of the earth and actually believe it or not it can change volcanic activity and so if you think of a magma chamber underneath the ground it can almost be pinched off and kind of 
you know, it's like stepping on a hose in a way. You know, you can kind of pinch off the, the flow by having a large weight on top of that <laughs> object. And so this is something that's not new. It's been around for quite a while, um, this idea. And, of course, in Iceland, if you actually ever look up some of the magma chambers and the, the passages, kind of like little rivers that run and then all of a sudden they break the surface and, and you get a volcano. And so if you think of that sort of river of magma running towards the volcano and you sort of pinch it off, well, you can keep the volcano dormant for quite a period of time. You start removing all the ice from on top of the land and bang, you open things up and, and the pressure changes and things are quite significant. Now, uh, a guy named Graham Swindles, and that's his real name, um, from the School of Geography at the University of Leeds, has actually been looking at this because um, one of the things that you can do is you can map volcanic activity back to temperature change of the atmosphere um, over time. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, temperature change of the atmosphere means the amount of ice that you find on, in places like Iceland changes. But there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a cool delay in when you then see the um, volcanic eruption, uh, number of volcanic eruptions changing. So, and that delay is actually about, typically about 600 years. So when the, the climate shifts and then you get the changes in the, the amount of ice around the world and then you get changes in volcanic activity, that gap is about 600 years. And they've done this by looking at a whole lot of activity over about um, well, the last 5,000 odd years and they've managed to map this quite well and they see this sequence and it's really kind of cool. The interesting thing is, so we might think, oh, well, we're changing the temperature now. We won't have to worry about those Icelandic volcanoes. <laughs> for 600 years keep going no problem um of course what we're seeing at the moment is temperature changes that are far more rapid than what anything has been seen geologically in the past and so what they don't know at this point is what the lag will be with the current circumstances in climate change and i suspect the answer is just a simple it won't be 600 years it'll be less than that because we'll see the complete removal of some of those ice sheets inside of decades not not you know hundreds or thousands of years so it's it's interesting um you know it's one of those things that we don't think about a lot is the idea that even small changes in in the mass sitting on top of these some of these land masses where there are you know interesting magma chambers and so forth underneath can actually affect things like volcanic um, activity it's not we don't normally make that immediate connection between you know fossil fuels and volcanic activity they're not they're not in the same path but um but it's it's real it's there they've seen the effects over several thousand years and it looks like um it's something we'll have to keep an eye on so there you go folks yeah well so happy sunday happy yeah. <laughs> um yeah no it's, I, I think it's fascinating it, it's interesting because um i suspect we'll also see similar things with earthquakes as well um over the years we'll see a, a, you know if you think of that massive redistribution of mass around the globe with regards to uh changing sea levels and I think just last week we I talked a little bit about the fact that um, NASA was doing some work on where those sea level changes will uh, where will happen and they'll happen differentially around the world because of the different strength of gravity at different points because of the different mass from the center at different points you know you low-lying areas not like etc etc so you get this distribution of mass that's not even around the world so it's not like everyone just gets a meter some places will get more some places will get less it's weird anyway keep an eye open for that it's uh yeah not good news we're going to take a break we'll be back in a moment with a guest and we're going to be talking about soil and antarctica they go together three triple ah 
you're listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo time. In the studio with us now is Romy Zinger. She is from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning from the State Government of Victoria. Romy, thanks so much for coming to Triple R today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Shane. Now, we're not so much talking about your government work. We're talking about everything else you're doing, which is fascinating. And you did your PhD... Can I say dirt or is it soil? Well, you can say dirt, but I prefer soil. Soil. Is there a difference between dirt and soil? Well, I mean, dirt you get under your fingernails and soil is full of lots and lots of wonderful things. <laughs> I love it. Um, now, tell us a bit about what, what the work was there because soil's something that we sort of take for granted in our backyards, but in terms of our ability to grow food as a country and around the world and so forth, the quality of the soil is particularly important, isn't it? That's exactly right. And if we don't have good soil, there's absolutely no way we can get good food. So my research is really focused on carbon sequestration potentials of soils mm-hmm. and I have most looked at agricultural soils um, and I worked with this fantastic product called biochar. Have you ever heard of biochar? I've heard of it but it sounds like charcoal. Right. Is so that what it is? Or pretty something much. like that, yeah. So it's a charcoal-like product. It's carbon-rich and it's produced with the intention of um, adding it to the soil. So a soil amendment like you would a fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And it's produced under low temperatures, so 350 to about 750 degrees C under low oxygen conditions. And it's full of all these incredible properties. So depending on how you produce it, you can end up with a product that uh, really can support increased uh, water holding capacity of soils, mm-hmm. uh, added nutrients to soils. You can even remove uh, toxicity from soils by adding it in. Okay. And what, what does it actually come from? Like when you're producing it, what's the input? So you can make it from a whole range of things, and that's why it's such an interesting tool to work with. So majority of what I've worked on is agricultural waste. So looking at um, a product called Great Mark, which is winery waste. Mm-hmm. Very nice to work in the wineries. Um, so that yeah, was an added bit of fun. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but people can make it from all sorts of things so you've got people making it from um oh sewage sludge um all sorts of different australian indigenous plants mm-hmm. and and they all have their own different properties so is this so when you go when when take something like viticulture and you, you go to your average winery is this something that they would sort of export in a way off-site to a biochar producing company or is it something that they could produce themselves and sell the final product? I mean, how hard is it to do this sort of work? You mentioned it was relatively low temperature. Right, so it can go either way. There are some big companies that are producing biochar en masse, so you send away your waste product and you know they, they'll make the biochar for you, whether mm-hmm. you need to purchase that back or whether it's given back to you. is you know That's an industry thing and I'm not really um, part of that. But you can also make it on site. So there are some farmers out there or um, communities in um, rural areas that are producing it on site in small combustion furnaces. Mm. So low oxygen environments are particularly important in this process. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that the, um, there's a very large fish farming uh, operation in Queensland where they use algae to filter their water and then use the algae and make biochar out of it themselves. Mm. Um, but my question was about what you mentioned about carbon sequestration. Because this is an amazing opportunity in soil that I think is underutilized and underexplored. Biochar is just is is one example of putting carbon into the soil, but we're still a little fuzzy, I think, on the mechanisms that nature uses to put carbon into soil. But the potential for sequestration is huge, from what I understand. Is that correct? Or absolutely correct? Uh, yeah, um, soil is. There is a huge amount of research being conducted worldwide, um, and I just don't think it gets enough um, 
you know, I suppose airtime. Mm. You know, it's it's um, such a wonderful way that nature actually manages soil sequestration, manages getting more carbon into the soil. So whether that's um, the decomposition of organic matter going into the soil or um, soil amendments like biochar. Mm. I'm interested in the supply and demand aspect of biochar in terms of who's using it, like who are the biggest users of biochar um, and who should be using it, who isn't maybe, you know, where, where where's the potential for biochar that maybe isn't being used and, and where is it coming from? Like are we making all this stuff but, but it's not really getting out there or, or, or is there huge demand and a huge unmet demand that we need to really, you know, make more of this product? Well, I wouldn't really be able to provide any expert knowledge on that as such, but I definitely agree with you that there is a huge need for the uptake of such kind of technologies, whether it is biochar or an alternative. Um, I think there would be a market for it, but I think it's very dependent on um, there being sort of a carbon credit system mm. for it to be a successful uptake. Mm. And do you find, you mentioned it was comparable, you know, you know in a similar vein to things like fertilisers and so forth. So, I mean, what do people see when they start using these these sort of biochar products? I mean, are they seeing vastly improved growth or is most of the benefit in the sequestration to the side of things? I guess the greatest challenge with biochar is the variety in the product that you get. Mm -hmm. So what you make it from and the conditions you make it in really changes the way that it interacts with the soil. And of course, soils are so diverse across the world. So the product and the soil combination really drive what you see. So for some soils and some biochar combinations, you're going to see enhanced plant productivity, so better fruit quality, maybe uh, better sugars in the fruits or... um, you might just see less productivity. Mm, you know, it, yeah, it, it can yeah. go either way. So there's yeah. a, a lot of research still going on to understand what the best combinations are, what best yeah. production mechanisms and are. And I suppose it's matching it to the crops you're growing too, not just the input, but you have to know what your crop deals with best. And it might be, you know, the the, the fish offsets or it might be the, the stuff from, you know, sewage farms. Um, now, I'm, do you carry around a little shovel? Like, is, is a soil specialist sort of someone who goes, I'm going to sample this wherever I am? Oh, is you know, there's an auger in the back of the car. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish. But, but you've collected soil from all over the world. I mean, what, what sort of, I mean, how different is soil when you do that? I mean, I can imagine there's scenarios where the soil's very dusty and it's not, you know, more almost sand-like, you know, the sort of stuff you find down, I don't know, talky. Um, but then, you know, you, in different countries, presumably, especially where there's volcanic activity over the and, and more, you know, New Zealand, for example, I assume has very different soils to Australia. Is that true or is that just, you know, a myth? Uh, completely true. Soils are very different everywhere. You can be one metre to the next and you're in a different soil type. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some fantastic experiences overseas for my research. I went to Thailand um, yeah. and up in the north in the Changdao National Park where I actually got to hike through the, like, hike through jungle with a machete trying to get to our soil sites. That is great. And, you know, you've got some places where it's really rocky. The higher up you go, the elevation change, all mm. of those things influence what kind of soil you get to see. Is, is there a soil bank around the world somewhere where people have samples of all the different types of soil around the world? Do we have something like that? Totally. There are soil libraries everywhere. Soil libraries? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. That's, that's so cool. Now, before we let you go, Romy, I wanted to talk about the Homeward uh, Bound program because you're part of this at the moment and you'll be heading off at some stage to Antarctica. Give us Just give us the sort of quick um, line about what Homeward Bound is and, and what you'll be involved in. Sure. Well, Homeward Bound is this fantastic program and uh, it's about raising the profile of women in science so science technology engineering math and medicine Mm -hmm. and it's about providing us with leadership skills and opportunity uh, to 
really start to drive policy change and influence. So there's a massive paucity of women in science. And if I take take an Australian example, um, we only have, well... When you, when you look at junior roles in science, you've got about 50-50 men and women working in science. And once you get to top tier management, there's only about 20% yep. of women retained. Yep. And, you know, this is a really big problem because you're losing the diversity of opinion, of knowledge, you're, all, all of these things. Mm. And it's really about raising women into leadership positions. Okay. And this, this is a quite a long program you're on. It's not just a quick trip to Antarctica. It runs for over a year around the, or a, a year around. That's right. It's a, a year-long leadership training yep. program. So we've had a lot of online delivery, a lot of group learning. So we're already networking with 78 mm. women from around the world, such diverse backgrounds. And, you know, it, it's been a lot of work and it's been incredibly enjoyable. Now, you're going to Antarctica to steal some soil, right? Ooh, I don't you, know. You're just, are you allowed to do that? Can you grab a little container and bring some soil back? Presumably so illegal. Not. So illegal. Yeah, but you, you'd have to be tempted. Yeah, so I was going to ask, with the Antarctica link, that's just part of the Homeward Bound project? That's right. So the, the idea about going to Antarctica um, for the Homeward Bound project is that you're in a really remote location, somewhere that is so vulnerable. Mm. You have and to you, survive. Oh, gosh. I, <laughs> and so we'll get leadership skills by default? Yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah, no, no one will get eaten. It, it, no. it's, it's very civilised down there. No, but Antarctica, you, people often think of it as this wasteland, and it is not. You know, it's the most life-abundant places on Earth. It's incredible. So what, what sort of things? Were, you're down there for a few weeks? So it's a 22-day expedition. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think it's five days crossing over, and I am terrified of open water. Soil scientist, two feet on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. A little bit nervous. Um, but we've got three weeks actually over there um, on the ship with a lot of online learning, getting to go out onto onto the ice and see some penguins. Yeah. Oh, well, there's a lot more stuff than penguins. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic. So good luck. Um, hopefully you. you have a, a good time down there. And I'm sure the overall experience for the Home and Bound program has been great. And um, keep up the great work with the, the soil. It's it's important. And I suppose it'll be even more threatened in the future. Romy, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks so much for having me. Romy Zinger is from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning at the State Government of Victoria and is heading off to Antarctica. And soon we might, might get you back to talk about the experience once you're done, if that'd be cool. All right, we're going to take a break for some music folks and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today uh, you are listening to triple r in the studio with us now is dr shalon nayak he's from the walter and eliza hall institute for medical research shalon welcome to triple r thanks very much for having me look it's great to have you in because there's this exciting new project we wanted to talk to you about the global human cell atlas anything the word atlas in it i'm all for <laughs> um now let's unpack it a bit uh human cells we i'm surprised we don't already have some sort of atlas we know a bit about this yeah so we do have uh we do have an atlas about the cells in the body that we know about uh the problem is we're looking at the fruit smoothies of cells till now and what i mean by that is let's say you take a little chunk of muscle and you put it in a blender and you look at the composition of it and you get some information um, whether it's Mm. gene expression or anything but in the same way you wouldn't regard a fruit smoothie as representative of one kind of fruit. Right. Underneath it is this composition. And so we don't necessarily know the blueberries of the muscle or the strawberries of the muscle. We might only know the mango. Yeah, yeah, right. So that's what it's trying to understand is, well, let's decompose it cell by cell okay. and then try and get a hold of it. So, so let me ask you two very specific questions. First is, how many cells do we have in the body? And the second is, how many different types of cells do we have in the body? So the average human has 37 trillion cells. That all. 
That's it. Yeah. Okay. No biggie. Yep. Um, and then the number of cell types in there is actually an open question. Right. So we don't, well, presumably less than 37 trillion. Less, well, but, but that's, well <laughs> some people would say we have as many different cell types as we have cells in the body. Is that's that right? That's what some would argue. Yes, because each cell is slightly different. But of course, you know, yeah. in the same way, yeah, they're all skin cells. Or, that's yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. right. But they think at least 300 cell types, but probably a lot more. And are there scenarios where... Uh, so, I mean, I just think of in the, the animal kingdom, for example, there are scenarios where we have many different species, but as we know, there are some species with a relatively small number of you know members of that species. Is it similar with cell types where there's some types where we've just got you know a million of those, but there's another cell type, like it might be cells in the retina where there's a relatively small number in the body just in general exactly and uh if you think about stem cells that's one classic case so if okay. you look in the bone marrow lots of uh macrophages and monocytes and this and that and the other but the stem cells that make are exceedingly rare 0.001 um so until you go to that level of sampling you don't necessarily know if they exist or not right and that's right. part of the challenge and how do we go about even attempting this? This seems to me like you, you're going to have to take an entire... Something like Walter Eliza Hall, which is you know, yeah. probably the number one research institution in the country, and say, you guys are doing the finger. And then someone, <laughs> you know... And so, I mean, because presumably, you know, when you talk about, you know, 37 trillion in the body... Yeah. The finger's going to have a lot, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure how much one research organisation can handle, but this has got to be a global effort. That's right. Well, there was a joke that since we're down under, we'll get the down under organs. Oh, <laughs> we, there's nothing wrong with that, mate. That's important stuff. That's right. Yeah. No, so look, it's not going to be in the sense that you get the big toe and you get the fingernail. It's, you know, with the Human Genome Project, you could divvy up the chromosomes quite easily. But with cells, I mean, how do you do that? So they're taking instead a model of scientists who are naturally coalescing around their area of biology so whether it's the skin or the yep. immune system and in that way sampling some of the major most widely studied organs first and then we'll kind of go into the more rare cell types that maybe no one works on yeah. is there currently like a worm cell atlas and you know like you know the genome we started off with simple organisms and then we got there with humans that's right that's right so um senor habdus elegans or c elegans or a little baby yep. worm yep um we know every cell that exists in that worm very well um for the fly as well i think there's a fly atlas if not finished uh probably not far away but, but obviously how many how many cells are we talking about there for something like a fly uh i couldn't tell you off the top of my head but it'd be a, a you know multi hundreds of millions presumably you know it's like a lot uh not probably not hundreds of millions probably yeah a, oh in a whole fly yeah in a whole fly, it a whole be. fly. but i mean but c elegans is only what a couple of hundred yeah something yeah, like that. Okay. And, and the most beautiful thing about that is they can actually map not only each cell in the the adult, but actually where each cell has come from originally. Yeah. So you know, you, but you start to think about the complexity moving upwards. I and I guess it comes back to that very first question for me: is where do you call a cell a different type of mm. cell? Um, because you know, there are some scientists out there who would argue that, well, you know, monocytes, dendritic cells, look, they're all just macrophages, mm. and they're all just subspecialties of this mm. one type of cell. And you could you could kind of think about it in terms of the analogy of, well, how many books are there in the library? How many different types of books? And you would argue that. Well, every book's unique, mm. but you can group them into different categories. Who's going to decide the categories for the human um, cell atlas? Like, who's going to decide this is, you know, fiction, non-fiction, history, <laughs> yeah. 
every, you know, all the... Like, Harry Potter. But, but that's the thing is that, like, if you keep going down further and further and further, like you say, you'll just have um, 37 trillion. That's it. So who's in charge of Who's in charge? Yeah. So everyone's in charge and no one's in charge. Well, that's a terrible answer. It is. <laughs> that's a terrible... No, in the sense, and I think we're going to look to computational biologists for this answer mm. because now we're dealing with an extraordinary number of parameters per cell and then for trillions of cells, how do we kind of demultiplex that information yeah. um so they're going to be critical to trying to answer those questions what's a cell type what's a cell state and when you so when you look at these different cell class- classifications and so forth at what point do you have to have some of the sort of storage mechanism or something where you say okay i mean i know in you know in, in measurement we have the si units of of measurements and so forth and then you know it might be a gold bar somewhere in france or whatever but in terms of cells what do you what are you comparing it back to so that if i take a cell and say where does that sit in this new categorization this new atlas what do i compare it to is it um you know what am i, what am I looking at yeah uh, this is a really great question and it's the topic of much debate is what's our if we're going to start this ambitious project, what are we comparing it to? And there's no clear answer yet. So we're trying to get some reference cells, um, and from those we can start comparing outward and kind of build that network. But batch effects, controls, um, stochastic effects, whether a cell expresses a gene like an hour before you're isolated versus an hour later can totally influence what it looks like. So these are all the topic of much debate that we're trying to get a handle on. And Charlene, how's this going to work? So there are researchers around the world who are part of this project. And so is everybody going to be looking at single cell data and then uploading it onto a database? And is it going to be global access? And how is it going to be funded? And can you give us some insight into that? Sure. So one of the salient features of this project is that it's going to be completely open access. So all of the data will be uploaded to the data coordination platform or the DCP. And that's being developed on currently by scientists from uh, Cambridge and Harvard Um, and that resource will be storage and they'll have an analysis garden so you can go up and analyse all that data Um, and that's a really key part of it as well as getting the metadata every cell you put in this is the you know individual it came from this was the location this is the 3d you know location of that cell in the tissue so all of this is really critical now the funding for that is still emerging so the scientists got together and said we're going to do this who's coming to the party Mm. so so far national institute of health have come to the party the welcome trust uk the chan zuckerberg initiative which is the philanthropic arm of mark zuckerberg of facebook they've come to the party um and gradually we're building up funds to do this, but obviously it's mm. a huge goal and so there's mm. plenty of more money needed. It's, it's one of those things where when I think back to the early days of the genome sequencing project, uh, there was a lot of parts of the sequence that people kind of put away as being, you know, that's junk DNA or that's stuff we don't need to know about. And, and over, the, over the period of probably two decades now, there's been a lot of <coughs> changing mindset around that as in, no, actually, this is really important. We do need to know. I, I mean, how much are you sort of keeping that sort of learning in mind with this project? Because as you say, there's some controversy over these are different cells, these aren't, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is if people take a good hard look at themselves here, they just don't know. 
And if they if they put too much of their opinion rather than evidence into this, we may get restrictions like we did with the Genome Project, but we'll later have to repair. That's right. So we have to be careful of our preconceived notions about mm. what we're looking at versus what might be important for understanding. So, you know, RNA is one of the things that we're looking at on a personal level, but RNA isn't the whole story. Mm. There's protein, there's methylation, there's DNA, there's all sorts of things. Um, so I think certainly, you know, every... Every cell is wonderful, every cell is good, and everything that we read about that cell is wonderful and good, and it will be there in perpetuity for us to come back and look at. With the Genome Project, it took a long time, and we're just really just starting to see now some of the benefits to the community of what that project was. What what sort of things will this get us? Because again, I mean, we're talking about you know the Genome Project, which is a massive investment of of medical funds, which could you know people at the time remember arguing that they would be better spent elsewhere. What I think this is very similar in that at the outset, it's very hard to see what what you will necessarily get from it. But I mean, we got some ideas of where. Yeah. So um so Dr. Joseph Powell from um, University of Queensland, who's my co lead on one of the Australian projects, um he talks about how the Human Genome Project of several years ago is now, as of today, responsible indirectly or directly for about two thousand genomic tests that a patient mm-hmm. has access to, yeah, which is real stuff on the which ground. is real yep. stuff on the ground, especially in areas like cancer and rare diseases, huge stuff. Absolutely. Yep. And and he truly believes that the single cell approach to understanding disease is going to open the floodgates for for a different style of diagnosis, treatment and prevention. Because now we're not just looking at the parts list of the human, which is what the Human Genome Project is, but the mechanics of each cell of how those parts fit together. Mm. And that can inform both health and disease. Mm. Look, it's fascinating stuff. Um, I suspect we're going to have to wait 10 years to come back and talk to you again <laughs> at some stage. <laughs> but but uh, look, good luck with it. Um, I think this is something we'll have to keep an eye on. It, it is, again, another one of these massive projects. And I guess my background is astronomy, so I love projects where they can only be done when literally tens of countries in the world are involved. And this certainly falls into this category. So have fun. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone. Dr. Charlene Nayak is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and working on the Global Human Cell Atlas, which is a project I suspect we're going to be hearing more and more about in the coming years. We're going to play you a couple of quick station announcements and we'll be back with just a little bit more news that we haven't quite finished off. Three. Triple. Yeah, it's getting towards that time of year when your ads for barbecue day, I think. Oh, I'm looking forward to barbecue there. day. We're almost there. Um, it's, we've got four shows, including this one, which has still got 10 minutes, so I'm counting it, for the, till the end of the year, which is not many. So anyway, no. we'll get some news out. Yes. Uh, Dr. Ray, what have you been looking at? So this was really cool. I didn't know it. When I heard it, I went, yeah, I guess that would be the case. Uh, thunderstorms cause nuclear reactions. Okay. Of course. So you don't need a reactor. <laughs> you just need lightning. And I kind of went, what? There's not plutonium or uranium there? What's going on? But I didn't, and, and people have known about this, but I think they've, they finally discovered what you'd say is scientifically conclusive proof it happens. That you get this high concentration of electrons from lightning and it actually drives a photothermonuclear reaction in the atmosphere. And you think, okay, there's a nuclear reaction. Is that hard to figure out? All you need to do is look for a neutron. But as it turns out, people have been trying that for a while and it, the, the problem is, you can get a neutron, but the detector can also be affected by other thing, other particles that can also detect gamma rays and things. So it's not conclusive proof to go neutron hunting for this. So instead, there's this group in Japan that actually went, well, you know what? In this type of nuclear reaction, you'd actually get other nuclear isotopes for nitrogen and carbon. And those would also give off a specific particle, particularly a positron, which is the 
opposite of an electron, but it's it's kind of its mirror image. Electrons have a negative charge. It's a tiny little particle normally hangs around an atom. Positrons are the opposite of that. They're antimatter. Antimatter. And yeah. when you form a positron, it doesn't hang around for that long. It runs into an electron and it gets quenched. And what's cool about that is when that happens, there's a very specific gamma ray radi- gamma ray burst that comes out. So we're not talking like the the, the Hulk. We're talking about hmm. a very specific line of and a, 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 a very specific energy. You can look for that. So this group in Tokyo, actually, in I think it was February last year, looked for just that that part of that emission. And what's really neat about it is you get the gamma ray burst from. The reaction going off from lightning, and that's a short time. And they're like, well, if that happens, then if we look about 10 minutes later, we should start to see this one specific energy gamma ray happen, and it should last as de- decays as that reaction goes away. And they saw it. Yeah, that's perfectly. exactly that. Yeah. And, 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 and that's conclusive proof that you do have this, this, this nuclear reaction going on from lightning. Yeah, so next time you're looking at a storm, and there'll be one later today in Melbourne, folks, uh, <laughs> and you see a lightning strike, realize you're looking at antimatter. There's antimatter there, which is good enough for long, but it's there. And we were talking, Dr. Ray and I were talking about it, because we realized we both came in with the exact same story, and I thought, well, Ray can do a better job than me, so he can do it. But the thing I loved about this story is that it, so it was published in Nature um, just recently. It got rejected from the funding organizations, and so they had to crowdfund it. Mm-hmm. And it ended up working this out and then being published in the highest-ranked journal in the world. That, that's unreal. I didn't... So when you said crowdfunded, I was like, wait, I was reading about the science. I missed yeah, that part. Yeah. And, the, the crowdfunding part for me was just super cool because, I mean, you can imagine people getting behind something that determines whether or not there's antimatter coming out of lightning. I'd chuck a buck into that myself. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool stuff. So, yeah, really, it's interesting. It's really interesting how... And it gives you a, even more idea of just how complex the environment is in the atmosphere. Like, it's extremely yeah, complicated. Well, it has implications for origins of radioisotopes or, yeah, or different isotopes everything. and where things might come from on our planet. It's it's kind of crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Got anything else there on your uh, little I, list? I do. There was a cool story that was published in Nature Human Behaviour this week that showed that by stimulating the brain, we can change our taste in music. So, <laughs> what, like an electrical shock, if you a if, little if, bit, a so, little bit, yeah. So, 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 on the this, this, this could be helpful with my eight-year-old. Is it okay to yep, use it on you children? You can change it. Uh, it's temporary. It's painless. So, actually, what they do, because I was thinking, oh, oh, wow, actually, how do they do this? They they got some volunteers. They got them to listen to some music, and they give them transcranial magnetic therapy. Now, that sounds terrible, but what it is is they they just put and I saw pictures of it. It's just a little hat, really. Um, a magnetic co- coil goes against the scalp, and it delivers painless magnetic pulses. And they target the part of the brain which they know releases dopamine, which is our sort of pleasure um, neurotransmitter. So they targeted the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Okay, it's just the left front part, basically. So they just target that part. They get their volunteers to listen to random musical excerpts, and they give them positive stimulation, which is just intermittent magnetic pulsing, or inhibitory stimulation, which is just doing it continuously. And then they asked people to rank the songs and it correlated with whether it was positive or negative. So this is really cool, right? Because we know that music gives us, you know, it's positive and we get happy, but no one's been able to manipulate it before. But All right, so two things. One really would be interesting for the Clockwork Orange remake movie. (laughs) Yeah, Um, absolutely. And and, and two, 
how do we know we're only messing with people's music choices? I mean, if it's a dopamine level yeah. thing, how does it not how does it not affect other behavioral aspects well, as well? Well, this is where this TMS therapy is actually being used to look at the treatment of um, depressive and psychiatric disorders exactly. as a non um, non drug, non pharmaceutical based intervention. Yeah, so I don't think their long term goal was change taste of music, which as beneficial as that could be for certain people, um, <laughs> as Dr. Crystal said, it's it's about kind of being able to manipulate the circuits for new therapies it's i have to say that this is simply scary shit <laughs> i mean uh, the idea that you could do this i mean if you think about it though this could have very big implications for things like rehabilitation in the criminal justice system and so forth where you you have some people who you you literally you know our jails do not rehabilitate people they make them worse and so if you can actually modify the way people perceive certain things and that's what we're talking yep. about here and you know the depressive disorders and so forth i can see with that but this 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 is heavy stuff what bothers me sometimes about this research is um my question is immediately the mechanism how much do we understand the mechanism and it comes back to ray's question of what else it affects you know so you suddenly get restless leg syndrome or something but you really like banana rama <laughs> is that you know is that the outcome i don't know i mean you know so that, that can be a bit messy so yeah. yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I guess that's why we do clinical trials and test these things. Yeah, and this is done. Exactly. On, this is done on people. Yeah, it's done on volunteers. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I'm not sure I'd volunteer for that. <laughs> uh, any, anything that involves magnets, I guess. Yeah. You know, except for MRI machines, anything that involves magnets, I think. A little bit uncomfortable on your brain, but proof of principle, circuits can be manipulated. That's all we can say at this stage. Yeah, and I think we said that we know that already. But uh, anyway, Dr. Crystal, you got anything you can give us in a minute? I've been interestingly following the effects on Brexit on the UK science environment. Um, Mm. This week we heard that the European Medicines Agency was moving from London to Amsterdam. Um, Johnson & Johnson have pulled out of an R&D collaboration in the UK um, because of Brexit. However, the UK government is heavily investing in um, R&D and life sciences as a result, and they've um, committed to increasing the budget an additional £300 million. Pounds. Yeah, well, and good. so, you know, they're, they're pouring a lot of money into um, science and innovation. And I think Australia needs to really make sure that we're keeping up. Mm, well, I think the, the thing there, of course, is that there's a whole lot of people in the UK who won't be able to access research funds or collaborations in Europe. They've been essentially cut off. And if you've done that for your entire career because it's the best type of research you can do, all of a sudden yeah. you're going to need another bucket of cash so, so yeah. yeah it's really interesting to see the shockwaves that that um, political decision is sending through the international research community mm, yeah i know uh there is a a lot of people are very excited in australia because of the recruitment potential because <laughs> people they are leaking people true. left right and center it's and there's some true. fantastic people that we may actually be able to recruit to this country as a result so from our perspective you know thanks Britain, between that something and, between that and the Trump effect, Australia is looking like <laughs> a great place. <laughs> yes, uh, and so is New Zealand. Um, anyway, folks, we're going to have to uh, say goodbye for the week. We will be back again next week with more science. But the team from Edith is over there. I saw Cam's been here for about an hour and a half. Walking so around excited. with a croissant. Yeah, walking around with a croissant. Uh, very excited about the show today. So he's going to teach you all about food over the next hour. Dr. Laura, good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks you for back on the plane. You're basically on the plane yeah, your whole life. Yeah, back tomorrow. <laughs> seriously? Yes, seriously. Bloody hell. Um, Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Always a pleasure. See you again soon. And Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane. Good to have you fine. back. You've been traveling as well. Yeah, well, I got one more weekend uh, here and then I'm traveling again. Traveling but not nearly as much as Dr. Laura. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, my life is boring. Uh, anyway, folks, uh, thanks for listening. We'll chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere and have a fantastic Sunday. And watch out for those lightning strikes this afternoon. There should yeah. be plenty of antimatter in the atmosphere. 
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.